Welcome to the June 2021 edition of Forecast Direct. I'm Leo Feller. We're honored today to have with us uh, Professor Leah Bustan. Uh, professor Bustan is a professor of economics at Princeton University. She does research on economic history and labor economics. And today we'll be discussing her upcoming book, uh, co-authored with Ron Abramitsky. Uh, the book is called Streets of Gold, Discovering the Truths and Busting the Myths of American Immigration. Uh, professor Bustan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you include the following quote from an Italian immigrant at the very start of your book, and I want to read it because it resonates with a lot of the story that you then uh, discuss. So the quote is, I came to America because I heard the streets were paved with gold. When I got here, I found out three things. First, the streets weren't paved with gold. Second, they weren't paved at all. And third, I was expected to pave them. So let's start off with the concept of streets of gold. Is it a myth? And what is life like for immigrants arriving into the US? Well, in one way, uh, we find that the concept of streets of gold is actually very true and has been true both in the past and today. If by that immigrants mean that moving to the United States allows them an opportunity to increase their own income, sometimes two or threefold. Um, and so, we ourselves have done some work on pairs of immigrant brothers in Europe. We see in their childhood home, and then we follow one of them across the Atlantic, and the other one stays home. We can follow them later in life and see how much income they earn, and we see that the brother that moved to the U.S. Um, earns around twice as much as his brother who stayed home, um, which would be sort of the best comparison to what you would think he might have earned if he had not become an immigrant. That's some work that we've been able to do historically around 100 years ago. Other people have uh, done similar studies for today and they find a similar thing. Um, so immigrants themselves experience a dramatic increase in income by moving to the United States. And in that way you think, yes, the streets in the United States do offer uh, gold for immigrant arrivals. Uh, but in another way, um, if the idea is that moving to the United States allows immigrants to move up the economic ladder here very quickly. We find that um, that is not so true um, either in the past or today. Um, so this idea of pull yourself up by your bootstraps um, or um, rags to riches uh, was not um, as true as we might think 100 years ago with European immigrants. And it's also not as true today. It does take immigrants time when they get in the U.S. Uh, to move up the ladder here. So let's let's talk about this concept of time, because you mentioned that oftentimes the benefit accrues not really to the first generation that immigrants that immigrates, but to the second generation, the children of these immigrants. So you mentioned that the children of immigrants are much more upwardly mobile than you know even their parents, uh, but also even of children of U.S.-born residents who were raised with families of similar incomes. Uh, so, so why is that? Why do the children of immigrants do well? And why do they often even do better than, you know, children of, of U.S. born residents? Um, so that's, that's exactly right. Um, we were able to look at um, children of immigrant parents and children of U.S. born parents um, 100 years ago and today. Um, so we see the children um, as adults working in the labor market and we're able to place them back in their, in their childhood homes. Um, so we focus on kids who are being raised in 
households with very similar income. And we see what happens to them when they get older. And both 100 years ago and today, the children of immigrants earn more than the children of the US born who are being raised at the same point um, in the income distribution in childhood. Um, so then we try to understand why. And I think if you go to a dinner party and have a casual conversation and you ask people, why are the children of immigrants doing better than the children of the US born? They'll say, has something to do with immigrant values. You know, immigrants work harder and they instill um, a concern for education in, the, in their kids. Um, and so that was our first guess. We thought maybe it has something to do with education. And what we found is that what matters more is geography. Mm. Immigrants come to the US and settle in labor markets um, that are offering opportunities for upward mobility for everyone. Um, and uh, this is especially true in the past. Think about um, the uh, US South 100 years ago. It was primarily agricultural. There were a lot of cotton farms. And immigrants avoided moving to the US South. Instead, they were living in the North and West. Within the North and West, they were particularly living in booming cities. And so we find if we compare immigrants to their next door neighbor, you know, someone else who's living in the same place, actually their kids do very similarly. Um, and so the pattern that we see um, nationwide is coming from the fact that immigrants are choosing uh, the um, up and coming or upwardly mobile uh, cities um, to settle. So coming back to the idea of immigrant values, is this a value? Well, it might not be the same as hard work or concern for education, but there is something about the immigrant experience that you know, makes sense of this pattern. Immigrants already chose to leave home and break ties with family back in their home country in order to, to move to the US and seek opportunity here. So once you get to the US and you have a, a set of possible locations to choose from, um, it makes sense that immigrants would look for the place um, that offers the, the most opportunity. Um, in contrast, people who are born in the US are already born into a particular state and into a particular city. They're living close to home. And some of them will you know, maybe move out move to a different region in order to seek opportunity, but many of them just stay close to home. Well, you know, let me bring into, some, into that some policy debates that have been, have been going on recently. There's been some discussion of uh, heartland, heartland visas, right, which is visas for immigrants, but conditional on them going to, you know, specific areas, specific cities. What are your thoughts, especially when you, when you mentioned that a lot of the success has to do with the labor markets that they're in, what are your thoughts on allowing immigration, but just conditional on it being to you know, certain cities, certain areas of the US? Well, what we found is that one of the ways that immigrants are so successful is that they do have a choice of geographic location. Um, and immigrants will um, settle in dynamic cities like San Francisco um, or New York or burgeoning places um, like North Carolina because there are great opportunities there. Um, and so uh, if immigrants arrive and are um, um, only allowed to settle in some of the uh, slower growing places, like in cities like Detroit or Buffalo, um, then we would not expect immigrants to be doing quite as well as we, um, as we see uh, immigrants doing today. At the same time, there are many uh, people lining up all around the world to come to the US. Um, and uh, that's 
for the reason that I mentioned at the beginning about streets of gold, simply by moving to the United States, um, a, a more productive economy, immigrants can um, take their own knowledge and their own labor and they can make more out of it. They can earn more here than at home. And so if you gave someone the choice, do I wanna settle in Buffalo or do I wanna stay home? Many immigrants would still take that bargain. They'd say, I'm happy to come. I know I won't do as well as if I had my choice of labor market, but I'm willing to come um, even if I have to settle only in a, a subset of places. Um, and so I, I think we would find people signing up uh, for those heartland visas and uh, simply by adding population um, to areas that had been declining, um, we might see some economic benefits. So the immigrants that are coming in today, how do they differ from the immigrants that were coming in from Europe uh, you know, 50, 100 years ago, um, both in terms of the skill, the education, the, the capital that they're, that they're bringing in? Is there really a difference uh, that leads to a different starting point, essentially, uh, that then affects their, their success going forward. What's fascinating, Leo, is that there are actually huge differences between who comes to the U.S. now and then, but there are not large differences in their outcomes. Hmm. Um, and so even though um, uh, we're attracting a very different set of immigrants today, um, those immigrants are achieving the same uh, degree of success as in the past. So let me explain what I mean. Um, in the past, um, almost all of our immigrants were coming from Europe. Um, Europe Europeans made up around 90% um, of our um, immigrant stock, and the other 10% were from Canada. Um, so originally, um, likely had European ancestry. Today, immigrants are coming from all over the world. Uh, Europe makes up only around 10% of our immigrant stock. Um, and many immigrants are from uh, Mexico, from other parts of Latin America, and from Asia. Um, so in terms of country of origin, very different. Um, in terms of background uh, and, and skills, um, again, quite different. Um, Europe and the United States were relatively comparable in the past. Um, there were some parts of Europe that were actually ahead of the US at that time, places like the UK, um, and other parts that were behind in terms of you know, GDP per capita, but not so far behind. Think about like the US versus Korea today or the US versus Portugal. Today, we're now drawing immigrants from parts of the developing world uh, where the GDP per capita in those countries substantially below the US. So the opportunities people have to receive an education substantially below. Um, as a result, um, we do have many immigrants today that start out um, with very low levels of education relative to the US born. Um, people who didn't even um, have a chance to start high school, let alone you know, become high school dropouts. But we also, there's another really interesting thing was even though immigrants today come from the developing world, many of them are coming from the very, very top of their home country uh, in terms of wealth or in terms of education. Um, so we have immigrants, for example, from Nigeria, 60% um, of whom um, have a, a, a college degree. Uh, if you look at the Nigerian population, um, only 5% have a college degree. Um, and so um, what we're ending up with today are immigrants you can think of as bimodal in skill. So some are very low skilled and some are very high skilled. Um, they're coming from both ends of the skill distribution. 
Um, so I've mentioned now three or four major differences between the past and present, which might lead you to think, well, immigrants today are going to have a very different path. You know, maybe immigrants did well in the past. Um, maybe they um, became Americans. Um, they moved up the economic ladder. But immigrants today are coming from very different places and very different backgrounds. And so they may not succeed um, to the same degree. And that was what was really fascinating about our work to us is that despite these differences in background, we're seeing very similar patterns of upward mobility over that century. So this brings me to an interesting question of if it's not necessarily the nature of immigrants themselves, is it the nature of our society, right? So you're, you're mentioning that immigrants with different backgrounds come in, uh, you know, they tend to do very well here. Um, has our society changed in a way that has helped them become more or less successful over time. And by that, I mean, we used to be a very manufacturing heavy uh, society. Uh, we were with much more manual and less skilled labor. Now we are a much more service oriented uh, skilled labor society. Has that led to uh, a change in the rate that uh, immigrants are able to advance or able to excel? Um, has it led to inequality uh, you know, among immigrants compared to in the past? Um, so in terms of income levels, we definitely see um, inequality between immigrants today. Some immigrants, as I mentioned, are very high skilled. Um, they're very high skilled even as they are first arriving. Um, and uh, they earn just as much, if not more, uh, than the US born. Um, some immigrants arrive very low skilled um, and they earn a lot less and they're filling in the bottom 10% um, or 20% of, of the income distribution. So we have a lot of, uh, of inequality within immigrants uh, today. But immigrants at the bottom end of the income distribution um, are experiencing income growth. So even if they arrive and, um, and earn very little, they are moving up over their own lifetime and especially their kids are moving up. Um, and so the way we see it is that background is not destiny. Um, it does give you a sense of where uh, immigrants will be in the first few years um, of their time in the US, but it doesn't tell you where they or their kids will be in the next generation. How does this affect the countries from which these immigrants are coming, right? So you talked about you're having a brain drain perhaps from the top end where you're getting people who are high skilled, high wealth, you know, lots of talent uh, being able to, you know, come into the US, but, you know, perhaps depriving their home countries of this skill and this wealth and this talent. Um, you know, what, what's, what's the implication for the sending countries when you think about both, you know, losing talent to the US, but perhaps gaining remittances, uh, you know, as, as people send money back home? You know what I think um, has the biggest effect on the home countries, Leo, is the fact that it's very hard um, to move back and forth these days. Um, in the past, uh, around a third of immigrants from Europe moved back to Europe after spending a few years in the, in the US. They, move, they moved to the US, which was a high wage country, saved up for three or four years, and then returned home to get married, to buy land, um, and to settle at home. And this pattern was actually um, relatively prevalent um, 
in, in the modern period as well, up until recently. Um, so if you look at some older stats, meaning like late 1990s or 2000, we also had around a, a one-third return migration rate um, from the United States. And many of those return migrants were moving back to Mexico um, or other parts of Latin America uh, or some countries in Asia. And they have a similar pattern of saving up in the US and then returning home. Now that it's harder to move back and forth, um, the more restrictions we have on mobility, the harder it is to do that. Um, many people are making the choice to, once they get to the US, they're gonna stay there and they're gonna raise their families there. And, um, and so uh, some of the investments that would have taken place in the home country um, get cut off uh, from that kind of migration restriction. In the US, how does documentation status help immigrants rise, right? You talk about how you know, immigrants come, they, might, it might be slow and steady for this first generation, then their kids do better off. Um, you know, but the difficulties associated with documentation status has perhaps you know, grown over time. Um, and so how has that affected the path and has that created some kind of bifurcation where documented immigrants do well, undocumented immigrants you know, struggle for longer periods of time? What's interesting is the generational piece of this. Um, most children of undocumented immigrants are US citizens. So around 75, 80%. Um, and what that means is that the struggles that their parents face in the first generation will not be their own struggles to carry. Um, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why we're finding still pretty dramatic rates of upward mobility uh, for uh, the second generation today. Think about it, if your parent is undocumented and they have certain talents, but they're not able to use those talents in the labor market, they're gonna end up doing things um, that, uh, taking jobs that don't require documentation, it might be cleaning houses, doing something off the books, and their income will be pretty low as a result. But if their child doesn't face that barrier, when the child gets into the labor market, they're gonna, you're gonna see a dramatic rise in income from the parent to the child generation. So I think that for luck, we're lucky that that documentation status is not an inherited part um, uh, of someone's identity. Otherwise, we'd be facing, you know, uh, pretty severe economic barriers for for immigrants and their kids. Now, there still is a question about the other 20, 25 percent um, of immigrant uh, of the of the kids of undocumented immigrants um, who themselves are undocumented, in the sense that they moved with their parents when they were young. Um, and uh, they arrived at, you know, five or six, and they arrived without papers. Um, what people uh, in, uh, find is that up through high school or so, um, those kids do well. They do fine because they have a right to a, um, elementary and secondary education. Um, their documentation status doesn't really come up in the classroom that much. And it's when those kids realize looking forward that it's gonna be hard to find a job if you graduate as a high school graduate or hard to go to college if you are trying to transition from high school to college. Um, that's when a lot of hopelessness comes in. Um, and so we do have um, a policy lever that we can pull, um, which at the moment is the DACA program, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, and it's via executive order. And it would be uh, helpful for the economy if we then would enshrine that in legislation, which was the idea of the DREAM Act. Um, and that has been you know, stalled and it's been um, 
raised a number of times. And I think at this point, because we have DACA, um, it hasn't been raised again recently because people feel like, well, okay, we have a temporary solution. Um, and that temporary solution did hold um, all the way through the Trump administration. So it seems like it's been tested and it's held. Um, and so uh, at this point, I would be provisionally saying, I think we're okay because we have the 75% of kids who are themselves US citizens and the 25% who have DACA. Um, but um, you know, more could definitely be done there to um, lower those barriers. What about the impacts on US citizens already who are here who, you know, there's a lot of uh, discussion that these immigrants are coming and taking US jobs, right? But you actually find something a little bit more interesting in your paper that it isn't about, it isn't a zero sum game where immigrants come in and out compete uh, US labor. Can you talk about the effect that immigration has on the US labor market for existing US residents or existing US citizens? So there has been um, a generation of work on this topic with, um, with modern data and, and modern examples. Um, uh, and one of the things that we do is we go back to a historical period, which um, gives us some insight on this question. Um, and that is the period of the 1920s. Um, up through 1921 or so, uh, immigration to the United States from Europe was essentially unrestricted. Um, to the point where you didn't even need to have a visa or a passport for entry. So you have this image in your mind maybe of Ellis Island, the waiting room, the benches, people show up on a boat, they get processed for entry. Uh, and that whole um, regime changed in the 1920s um, with a set of very restrictive immigration quotas. Um, actually even more restrictive than we have today in terms of, uh, in terms of the numbers that were allowed in. So that's going to be a real sea change in uh, um, the uh, Im immigrant workforce. And so we thought this would be a good opportunity for us to think a little bit about what happens when, if immigration were to be cut off like that today. Um, and we haven't gotten to that point yet, but there certainly were proposals along those lines um, in the last administration, like the 2017 RAISE Act. Um, so um, what we find is that um, it seems like firms are just incredibly adaptive uh, to this loss of um, labor force. Um, it's not like immigrant workers and US born workers are the only two options. Um, there are also other places that firms can look for, um, for workforce and there's also the possibility of replacing workers with machines. So we find slightly different sources of adaptation in different parts of the country. In the manufacturing sector, um, well, uh, factories needed workers. And so when Europeans uh, stopped coming in, um, firms realized, well, this legislation didn't say anything about Canadians or Mexicans, did it? No. So suddenly there was this a, a new source of labor that um, firms started to tap. Um, they also um, were, bring, were uh, attracting workers from other parts of the US. Um, who were um, moving as internal migrants. In rural areas, um, farmers have been reliant on immigrants for farm labor. Um, and once immigration was cut off, they switched over to tractors and other kinds of machines. Um, and this is a pattern that other people have found throughout the century. Um, 
in the middle part of the century, there was a guest worker program for Mexican farm workers that got cut off in 65 and farmers were shifting over to machines at that point as well. Um, so we think of the, the cities and the factories as telling us something about what today would probably be offshoring. Um, you know, if you, okay, there was a loophole in this legislation that allowed Mexicans and Canadians to come in, maybe policymakers that would be smarter this time around and say, we're, we're not going to leave that loophole. Um, and then they might think to themselves, well, what are you going to do? I guess you have to hire an American worker. Well, not necessarily if you can offshore some of your tasks um, to workers in other parts of the country, in other parts of the world. Um, and, and certainly there's a direct analogy there between uh, the rural areas and shifting over to tractors um, and automation today, because there are many tasks that you think could be done by human labor or could be done by machines. Um, so, uh, you know, granted, something you learn from the 1920s is probably pretty different from something for, from 2020, but um, it's really fascinating because it was the one moment in our history where um, we actually did implement a massive immigration restriction. So interestingly, that brings us to the situation that we are in today, where we're talking about, uh, you know, a labor shortage despite having, you know, still very high unemployment. Uh, you hear about firms uh, saying how difficult it is to, to hire workers. Um, we're seeing that baby boomers are aging and, uh, you know, we're not having a, a high enough replacement rate uh, in terms of people having children uh, so that, you know, our population might actually shrink over time uh, absent immigration. Um, so, you know, what are your thoughts about the, what the U.S. needs in terms of immigration policy going forward? You know, what would be a, uh, let's say, you know, an ideal or optimal design for our immigration policy, uh, you know, to sustain U.S. growth uh, and to benefit U.S. growth for this next decade? Well, some people point to um, the Canadian immigration system, for example, um, that um, gives immigrants each a point for certain desired traits. You know, speak English, you get a point, graduate from college, you get a point, and so on. And then will select immigrants that are above a certain point threshold. And I think that um, that type of uh, system is a bit problematic because we, what we might need in our workforce going forward might not be things that we can write down on paper and say, well, we need college grads and we need um, uh, people who speak English necessarily. What we might need going forward are a lot of uh, people who are eager to work in elder care um, or people who are eager to work in childcare so that um, uh, moms can uh, go to work uh, and we don't have um, even further restriction on our workforce given our aging population. Um, and so immigrants of that nature may not show up very well on a point score uh, in, under the Canadian system, but that might be precisely the immigrants that we need. And I know that certain point systems will say, well, we reevaluate our needs as we go. And if we need immigrants of a certain type, like we need elder care, we'll prioritize that down the line. Um, but I think immigrants are smart enough to know, um, well, you know, my skills are needed in the US. Um, this is how much I might earn if I move there. And immigrants are responsive uh, to the economic opportunities that we have. Um, and so uh, I think in some ways we have a, a system that works just fine. And the question is, um, do we wanna tinker at the margin to um, increase the um, 
the quota cap that we have now. Um, we set a quota of a little under 700,000 immigrants uh, a year. And then there's additional immigrants that come in who are a bit who are above the quota cap um, because they are a spouse um, uh, or a, a child um, of, of a current citizen um, or green card holder. So we get around a million immigrants a year. Well, you know, what if we increased a bit more than that? What if it was, um, you know, an additional 100 or 200,000? Um, how many additional immigrants would we need um, to uh, fill some of these gaps that you mentioned in terms of an aging workforce? I haven't run the numbers myself, but I've seen the numbers, and it's really not that much of a, of a, of a, of a gain. Somewhere 200, 300,000 additional immigrants, so like a 20 to 30% increase, would actually go a long way given um, the declines that we have in um, uh, the birth rate, um, the aging population, um, and the slowdowns that we've have, had in immigration recently. You know, even a country like Japan that has historically been considered an aging population that's close to immigration, that's very inward looking and doesn't look out to uh, the rest of the world for a workforce, um, they have re uh, reformed their immigration system very quietly over the past uh, few years. Um, and uh, uh, there's now um, um, a substantial inflow into Japan to address these exact concerns. Um, somehow there, there isn't as much of a political uh, debate about it. So it hasn't um, been something that people have noticed. I think there's an acceptance that um, we need uh, workers of a certain type. If they're not here, like you look around the country, we don't see them here. We don't have quite enough uh, people here. And so there's um, an acceptance in Japan now um, of uh, using immigration for that purpose. Um, so I think, um, you know, we might be getting to that point here um, uh, when we face the demographic reality. Great. Professor Mustan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, fascinating topic. Uh, your book, Streets of Gold, is coming out later this year, uh, and I look forward, I got the, the opportunity to read uh, an initial manuscript. I look forward to reading the, uh, the full book once it's released. Thank you very much, Professor Gaston. Thank you so much for having me.